with you along with my fellow lockdown football commentators Mark Rodden, Stefan Gioni and Dimitra Julai. It is the 38th anniversary to the day of Northern Ireland's famous win over Spain in the 1982 World Cup and we have the goal scorer Jerry Armstrong with us. Jerry, how are you doing? That that goal, that game has definitely benefited you for many years since, hasn't it? It certainly has. I mean, Northern Ireland had a wonderful tournament and uh, I, I had a good tournament as well. So um, after that, as a result of that, maybe about a year later, I was transferred to Real Mallorca and that was uh, the start of me going into La Liga. And uh, I started to find out about football abroad and the, the type of talent and skill that was necessary there. But um, yeah, it was a massive, it was a massive uh, tournament for me. And obviously that goal was very important. Now, um, and we'll come to the tournament and so on at the moment, but, I mean, how have you been keeping yourself busy during the lockdown? <laughs> well, I started a show about 10 weeks ago, Will, and uh, it was basically um, a bit of fun, just but everybody was trying to support the NHS, and um, people didn't know what to do with themselves, so I put a bit of humour in and did question and answers on a Thursday night, and I had a couple of really funny interviews that uh, I got with uh, the likes of Billy Hamilton, and Sammy McElroy and Pat Jennings and Martin O'Neill. I got my old teammates to come on board. And uh, they were a lot of fun and telling some great stories. And it just grew in stature. And then instead of just having video uh, messages from them, I decided to do the Zoom calls and do question and answers. And uh, it took off again. Sammy McElroy came on and told about his debut and about how he was at the hotel when Frank O'Farrell came in and said, Dennis Law has failed the fitness test. Sammy, you're playing today. You're making your debut against Manchester City. And George Best came up to him and said, well done, son. And he said, if you, um, you do well, he said, I'll get you a present. So uh, the game finished 3-3, but Sammy managed to score. And George had beaten a couple of players and slipped the ball to him. And Sammy beat one and put it in the back of the net. So George presented him with a big magnum of champagne and uh, in the dressing room. And... Uh, Sammy says, I wouldn't even open it for 15 years because George Best had given it to me. And uh, he said, but um, he said a few months later, he got a call up for the international team. And he said, uh, what happened was, he said, we were playing Spain in Hull because Northern Ireland couldn't play at home then. So they had to play in Hull. Terry Neal was the manager. And they played on the Saturday night. And he said, uh, we went out and had a drink. And George says, right, where are you going, Sammy? And he says, it's half 11. He said, I'm going to go home, George. He said, I've got to be at the train station tomorrow for nine. And George says, I'll meet you at the train station. I'll buy the tickets. And he said, I'll see you. I won't be much longer. So Sammy went off the, the bed and got up the next day and got there at quarter to nine and 10 to nine and five to nine. And George still wasn't there. Nine o'clock, Sammy bought his own ticket and off he went to Hull. But he said, on the Tuesday, George turned up but he had Miss Great Britain on his arm. <laughs> Typical George. So the stories that were told were great and people just responded to it and they loved to hear that inside information. And um, so I got different uh, colleagues on and then I brought on the likes of Johnny Quinn, who's a drummer with Snow Patrol. And there was a bit of entertainment with that one. And uh, he was very enlightening. Some of the stories were great. And then we had Brona Gallagher, the Irish uh, actress who was in The Commitments and in Pulp Fiction and The Phantom Menace, Star Wars. So she was really funny, great fun. And again, the audiences grew and 
uh, the popularity and I had John Barnes on and I had Graham Souness on and last week I had Glenn Hoddle on along with Carl Frampton who was you know twice world champion at featherweight so I've had some great guests on and uh, we're doing a bit of a celebration obviously ourselves this week because 38 years we can't believe it Norman Whiteside's message is a funny one you have to see that one yeah. 38 years, as you say, and I mean, that tournament, because uh, it had been in Northern Ireland's first since 1958, it was a great achievement to get there. And then the first two games in that, you were unbeaten, drawing against Yugoslavia, against Honduras. So all you had to do then to stay in the tournament was to get a result against the hosts. Valencia, easy. All that you had to do, yeah. It was the Luis Casanova Stadium in Valencia. And uh, it was, um, listen, we done well. The first game it was a tough game against Yugoslavia. And they had scored something like 26 or 27 goals in qualifying. Now, we hadn't scored 26, 27 goals in about 10 years, you know, to, to, to do that. They were a very potent team. And we knew they were, they were dangerous. But we nullified them in the first 20 minutes. And we got stronger as the game went on and found out our fitness levels were good. Uh, we were very resolute, hard to break down. And in the last 20 minutes of the game, we could quite easily have won it. And uh, we finished stronger. So that gave us the confidence. And Martin O'Neill, who had told us, look, we can draw against Yugoslavia, we beat Honduras, and then we only have to draw against Spain to qualify. So that was the plan. Uh, unfortunately, a guy called Betancourt popped up with an equaliser after I put his 1-0 up. So um, it finished 1-1, and uh, the scenario was we had to beat Spain. And Martin had a, a meeting around the swimming pool the day before the game, and he said to the lads, look, we know what's going to happen here. He said, the Spaniards are under pressure. He said, they're, they're going to be putting themselves uh, at us in the first 15, 20 minutes. They've got to take the game to us. We'll absorb the pressure. We'll do what we're good at. We'll get behind the ball. And gradually, we'll come into the game. and We'll, we'll create four or five chances, and we, we'll stick one of them away. And we'll win the game 1-0. And that was Martin's prediction the day before. So I want to, I want to ask him about that again. <laughs> but um, it was unbelievable because the referee, I didn't think, was very good. He was a South American referee. He was conversing with the Spaniards and um, he gave virtually every decision against us and uh, we felt up against the, the wall. But we got the one chance and we put it away. And uh, after that, we thought we can defend, no problem. But then Maldonado, he got sent off, which was a very harsh decision as well. But great bunch of lads, very resolute. We had best keeper in the world in Pat Jennings in goal. And he made two or three unbelievable saves. But we, we kept them at bay until I think it was around the 90th minute. And they had made a substitution. They brought on Keeney, who was the top goal scorer in Spain and had just signed for Barcelona. And they lobbed one over the top. And there was a hesitation between Chris Nickel and Pat Jennings. And the ball bounced in between the two of them. And you thought at one stage it was going to go over Pat's head and hands. And Keeney was coming running on to try and get a touch on it. And Pat, Pat, as cool as a cucumber, he, he flicked it with one of the big right hand. He flicked it over his head and caught it with the other hand. And he made it look so nonchalant and so easy. But um, that was probably the scariest moment. And that was in the dying seconds. But celebration afterwards, fantastic occasion. And we were through to the quarterfinals. Obviously, it's, it's been on TV a lot, that game, the past few weeks. BBC have had it on a couple of times and TG4 as well lately. Um I mean, the goal, obviously, is the moment that everybody remembers from the game. Arcanada flapping at it and right man in the right place to put it away. 
I think I only got into the penalty area about three times in the game. And I was supposed to be up there a lot more often, but we were defending quite a bit. And I start, started it off in my own half because I played about five yards in front of Jimmy Nickel. And they had a little left winger called Lopez Uforte, who was really pacey. And uh, Rafael Gordillo was the left back who pushed on. And um, I, I ended up defending in most of my half, uh, most of the time. But when you get chances to break away, so that was one of our breakaways. And uh, I remember knocking it out wide to Billy Hamilton. Billy, six foot three. He took on the, the centre-back who had come out to him, and it was Tendillo. And Tendillo was a big lad, but he was the youngest player in the Spanish squad. And he stood square on, and Billy knocked it past him. And as he went past, he threw his left arm out and slapped Tendillo out of the way and went down, and he put in a fantastic cross that tempted the goalkeeper, Arcanada, to come out for it. And uh, I was coming into the penalty area as the cross came in, and I couldn't get on the end of the initial cross, but thankfully, Arcanada flapped at it and, and palmed it out to me around the penalty spot. And all I could think was, keep your head down, get over the top of the ball and keep it low. And it actually went through two sets of legs. I think if you look at it, well, you can see it goes through Arcanada and also Alessandro. On the, uh, on the line, so went through two sets of legs to hit the back of the net. So, big goal for us and a wonderful uh, tournament. And to win the group was amazing when nobody gave us a chance to even, to even uh, get a point out of the group. That was the big bonus. And the group ended up being you know, very, very tight. And it was at a time when three teams could go through a group and, and two points for a win. So every win was quite vitally important. But it wouldn't give you a bigger advantage in the days of three points for a win, let's say. No, it wouldn't. And, and the tournament was split in a different way. The quarterfinals was three teams going to the quarterfinals. And it was an unusual one because um, we won our group. And I thought we should have had a, a better break. So the first game of that group was France played Austria. So we had two or three days free. And I remember watching the France v Austria game. And um, France beat Austria uh, comfortably. And then Austria made wholesale changes for the next game two or three days later against ourselves. And um, we should have won that match against Austria. We, we went 1-0 up. Uh, Billy Hammond scored a fantastic goal at the far post. And uh, then we conceded two poor goals. And, of course, we had an injury to Pat Jennings, and he wasn't in goal. And uh, there was a bad deflection for one of the, one of the, uh, the, the goals that was scored. And uh, we ended up chasing the game. And we went 2-2, and we should have won the game. We were very unfortunate not to win the game. But it meant we had to beat France in the last game. And France had had a four, five, six-day break. And we only had two days break from the Austria match. And the Austria match was the hottest day of the year. I think it was around 112 degrees. And it was a four o'clock kickoff in Spain in Madrid. So um, we were pretty shattered. We had a lot of tired players. and uh, you know, The France game didn't, didn't really come at the right time for us. But in the first 20 minutes, we played really well. And we knew we had to win it. And Martin O'Neill scored a wonderful goal that if you look at the replay, you can see he, um, he scored a great goal. He played a one-two and he stuck it in the back of the net. And it should have been a goal, but the linesman put his flag up and he was at least a yard and a half onside when he scored. And uh, had we scored that goal, I would maintain that we would have closed up shop and uh, France would have found us difficult to break down. Even with Platini and Gires and Tigana and Rochato and all the rest of them. And we could quite easily have been playing Germany in the semi-final. 
Because the game plan for that game, it was something like half an hour before France had got the opening goal. So it was a bit after that offside decision, maybe 10, 10, 15 minutes after that offside decision that they went ahead and then they managed to add another one and then sort of pulled through from there. Yes. Yeah, it was it was difficult because we're not good at taking the game to the opposition. That's not our forte. We had, you know, Mal Donaghy was a fantastic fullback who could have played centre half. He was good in the air, but he was quick and he had good feet. And he played left back, uh, even though he was right footed, but he was such a good defender. And then we had John McClelland, who had a wonderful tournament. And John was tall. He was 6'2", six, six but he was very quick. But like, he reminded me a lot of David O'Leary. David used to cover the ground with the big long legs and John McClellan was quick. And then, of course, six foot four beside him was Chris Nickel, who was brilliant in the air, had loads of experience and kept it nice and simple. And then Jimmy Nickel was uh, the attacking fullback on the right-hand side, great on the ball, good skill and technique. So the back four was solid and the goalkeeper was world-class. And then you just had a lot of people who worked hard in the middle of the park. We, David McCreary, had a great t- tournament, I have to say, because... He was always there to toe poke and nick a ball away from people. And he was like a wee ferret. He used to just keep at their, their heels and put them under pressure. And Sammy McElroy had a lot of technique um, for you know a, a midfield player. He played on the left-hand side. Martin played in the middle. Another one who had good technique. And Martin scored a lot of goals from midfield. You know, and, uh, and myself, I was playing on the right side, which was Billy Bingham had this stroke of genius where he decided to play me on the right side of midfield to support Jimmy Nickel. And then to get into the box when we had opportunities. But that allowed him to put Norman Whiteside, who turned out to be the youngest player in the World Cup ever. And um, he was playing up front alongside Billy Hamilton, who was a big six foot three battering ram, you know. So the, the, the team had a good uh, shape about it, and everybody knew our strengths, and we played to our strengths. And we went undefeated from 1979 80 to 1985 86, six years at Windsor Park before we, we lost the game. So it shows you the strength and depth and, and the, the determination that we had. And a long-serving boss as well and Billy Bingham, who stayed until you know 1994, who was the longest-serving of the bosses, of the home country's bosses. What was it about him that, you know, made, that, that, that you know, that got Northern Ireland together and got them into tournaments? Listen... John O'Neill had played nearly all the qualifying games at centre-half. So for Billy to do the British Championships, bring us down to Brighton and prepare us, and we prepared really well. We trained hard, and it was hot and bright that summer. We were at the Sussex University, and we trained there. And I'll tell you what, we were training every day, morning and afternoon. But you could see he had this idea, and he had a chat with some of the senior players about it. And he, he liked Norman Whiteside, even though he was just turning 17. He liked Norman because he was naturally left-footed. But he was built like a man, and he played like a man. And uh, he had unbelievable ability. So Billy's plan was to put Norman up front and stick me in to give us a wee bit more strength and depth. Plus, I was the fittest player at the club, or at the, uh, at the, the squad, and I could run all day. So I had these bundles of energy that I could support the defence and then get up and down the park and cut and just runs against the, the defenders. And, you know, we had, he had these ideas and he thought that would work and it would benefit the team. So that was an insight into his knowledge of the players he had. And he played systems that suited us, not the opposition. He was a good tactician. He knew how to keep it tight. Even in the qualifying, we had Scotland, Israel, Sweden, and Portugal. 
and Portugal were supposed to win the group. Scotland was supposed to finish second. Sweden were probably supposed to finish third, and we were supposed to be fourth uh, ahead of Israel. But we beat Sweden 3-0 first game, and we drew with Israel away. And then we went 1-0 up against Scotland over in, in uh, Hamden Park, and, and it ended up 1-1. And, you know, he, he, we didn't concede many goals. He had us really solid. So as a tactician, he was brilliant. And that's why Northern Ireland won two British championships in 1980 and 1984 and also qualified for the World Cup in 1982 and 86. And we should have actually qualified um, for the 84 Euros because we beat Germany home and away and we ended up losing out on goal difference to them, which was crazy situation in those days. But um, the, nobody's ever beaten Germany home and away in any World Cup or European competition except Northern Ireland. Yeah, and under the UEFA rules now, you'd have gone through in the head-to-head yeah, correct. Yeah, under the modern rules. Last one for me for the moment. Um, the camaraderie in the squad must have been quite something to get to two World Cups in a row and to have the benefit of you know being better at the time in many ways than England, Scotland and Wales. Yeah, I mean, that's always been a feature for the Northern Ireland team. And um, I have to say, there's a bunch of lads there who are great, great um, friends and as well as teammates. And there's a bond that's been there and is still there, you know, um, I've got nine of them coming on this week with me, you know, and it's and it's the fun. We look forward to meeting up with each other because the, the, the jokes and the fun were great. There was always a bit of music. There was always a couple of drinks, you know, and it was it's just typical Irish humour. You know, we loved it. We loved our own company and we loved the, the way we performed and we had confidence and belief in each other. And that, that's what we did in those days. And I think it took us on to another level. And I'd love to see a lot of other teams adapt the sort of policy that we had then you know uh, you look at modern football now and I don't see the camaraderie as much um, as it was maybe 30 or 40 years ago Jerry uh, I just wanted to ask because you mentioned the qualifying campaign because you played Scotland and of course you knew Scotland you knew the players so they, they were in the same divisions as you but in those days what was it like in international football you played Israel how much did you know about Israel, because now you can get all the games, you can go and watch them, you can know every single player. But then Sweden, Portugal, Israel, how did you prepare for that? Well, we, we played, Israel was our first game, and it was in March, and we were going to Tel Aviv to play. And um, we didn't know that much about them, to be honest. And they had just been brought in as a late uh, um, inclusion from FIFA for the qualifications. And we had no objections to them, said, no, bring, that's great. Because, because having them in meant that two teams qualified out of the group of five. And I thought there was a better chance for us to qualify first or second. And you have to stay positive, even though the other teams would have fancied themselves more. But uh, the first 20 minutes of the game was okay. And then the heat, believe it or not, it was really hot. And we started to struggle a bit. And there's a story, if you actually check it, the floodlights failed after about 35 minutes. And I'm telling you now, I'm glad the field because we were struggling <laughs> and uh, we needed a water break and to get ourselves organized because it's some really good players. And you, I think we went in a little bit complacent and we got away with a draw. We could actually have won the game in the last few minutes because Sammy McElroy missed a, a chance from close range. But listen, a draw there was a good result and we were happy with that. Then the next game was at home to Sweden and Sweden were a good team. But on the day, we just, I don't know, we were very focused and we had a good bunch of lads and, and we got an early goal. 
Um, Sammy McElroy scored in that, that match and Jimmy Nichols scored a goal with his left foot from 25 yards. It's his only goal for Northern Ireland. It was an absolute screamer. It just flew in the top corner. So that sort of thing knocks the stuffing out of the opposition. And um, we won the two games comfortably, which gave us a little bit of a lift. So we hadn't got the sort of preparation uh, in terms of Israel, but sir, against Sweden, Billy Bingham knew who their strengths were and they were a very physical, strong side which probably suited us because we were a physical strong side as well. But big points, and uh, it went right down to the, the final whistle. I mean, we beat Portugal 1-0, and we should have beaten Scotland. Scotland, we knew their game. They had much better players than us, um, but um, collectively we were really hard to play against because we played, made teams play across the park against us. We didn't let anybody penetrate. And we were 1-0 up in Scotland, and it finished 1-1 in the first game and in the second game at Windsor Park we should have beaten Scotland they know they got away with it it was nil-nil but the, the players they had were much much better on paper than us uh, they usually don't get away with it when they go to the finals but in the qualifiers <laughs> it's uh, different but for you the World Cup was sort of a springboard and you joined the Spanish club in Mallorca when the first division for the first time in 13 years was a very difficult season they went down to how was that that transition yes it was from one island to another but it was from one league to another, a totally different league. And especially in that particular era, you had Athletic Bilbao and Real Sociedad dominating the league. So how was that transition for you as a player to go to Spain and play in a new league? It was difficult, but it was an adventure. You know, I was 29 when I went there and I knew I had three or four years left at the top. And I thought, well, why not? I'll give it a go. I'll try a different league. And uh, I got feeling told me it was a good idea. And I, I went with it because nobody was going to Spain then. The players were going to Italy and uh, there was a lot of big names going to Luther Blissett went at the same time as I went to Spain. He went to uh, Milan. So I was, it was a big gamble on my part, but I found out when I got there that technically the players were brilliant and they played an attacking style of football. They may have played five at the back, but they would play, you know, the four would be three and one up front. And I was the one up front as a target man. And it was a British-style bustling centre forward who would put himself about. But then you'd have players coming down the flanks. I saw different styles of play, different systems of play. Our Probably our most technical player was our centre-half, who was a sweeper, really, Rafael Gallardo. And um, technically, he was brilliant on the ball, but he couldn't tackle. He couldn't tackle. You know, how can you have a centre-half who can't tackle? You know, but this is the style of play. And they were all good on the ball. And uh, I, I looked at the system there and they modified that system over the years because if you remember in the late 70s and early 80s, it was British teams were winning the European Cups and the Champions Leagues. You know, Aston Villa had won it, Nottingham Forest won it twice, Liverpool were winning it. So there was something just wasn't right in their makeup and it was a physical side of it. The, uh, the Spaniards didn't like the physical contact, but when I, I learned from a cost, the likes of... Uh, Miguel, who played for Barcelona. Wow. And uh, the, the centre half at uh, Bilbao was uh, the butcher of Bilbao. He was the one to get suspended for 10 games, for 10 weeks for hammering Maradona, you know. And they had some real physical characters. So they started to learn the physical side of the game and they, with the skill they had, and they adapted it. And that's why in the last, for me, the last 20 years, 25 years, Spanish football has just blossomed and you've seen Real Madrid winning Champions League after Champions League Real, uh, Barcelona winning Champions League UEFA it's like Spanish clubs are in the final virtually every year 
you know, Espanol, Sevilla, you know, it's just, it's crazy. So they've got, they've, they've got a real system that works for them at the moment. And um, I, I've got a love of La Liga, which I've worked on for the last 25 years, but it's having the insight as to how they adapted and they progressed. And I learned that in the two years I was uh, in Mallorca. Did you wish you could have more years in that particular league at the moment? Yeah, I, I wish I'd have had a few years uh, at a different period of time, maybe 10, 15 years on. I mean, the coaches that I worked with in Mallorca, um, the reserve team coach was Lorenzo Seraferrer. And Lorenzo went on to become uh, director of football in uh, Barcelona. And then he became manager of Barcelona. And we used to have conversations and he would ask me about the coaching in England. And the coaching in England was physical, all physical. It was lots of running. It was lots of hard work. And I explained that to him, but the Spaniards, they didn't do that much physical work. It was all, they would play head tennis and keeping the ball up twice before you knocked it over a net and stuff like that. So it was all a technical one. Now you were doing a little bit of work, but you weren't physically working as hard. So it got to the stage in New York, the third or fourth week I was there, I felt that my physical fitness was dropping. And I told the coach that. And um, I had to do that through an interpreter because I didn't speak Spanish at the time. So um, I did that. And then I started doing my own training. When the players finished at Mallorca and they went off the pitch, I would work on my own. And after the first couple of times I did it, um, the Argentinian players, there was four of them in Mallorca, they joined in because they wanted to be physically fit. And that was something that appealed to them. So they became part of the, the team. But the other Spanish players didn't. They, they just finished their work and there was no camaraderie. You wouldn't get speaking to each other. They didn't go and have a chat and have a coffee somewhere afterwards or a beer. They took off. And um, I, I felt that there was part of their build-up was still wrong. And I would like to think I helped them because Lorenzo Surfer asked me about the coaching and the training. And I explained to him it was different at club level to international level because you only have the players for four days. And um, the players, you have to hope they're all fit but you have to look at the, your team and look at the opposition and come up with a system that's going to get you a result in uh, international football because you don't have enough time to prepare. Just going back on, on what you mentioned, that change, if you look at um, the last 20 years, Spain has been the top-ranked team in uh, UEFA for pretty much all of it, apart from a few years England got ahead of them. And you mentioned Real Madrid, Barcelona winning the Champions League, Sevilla... Atletico winning the Europa League, UEFA Cup, Valencia had a great side as well. Are you kind of thinking that the change started when you were playing? That we only kind of, that it took a while for them to, to add the bits they needed to become so dominant? No, I, I think they were looking for a system that was going to help them and benefit them. And I think it took probably 10 years after I'd been playing there. 10 years after that, I think they fell on the formula. And, and, and I talked to David Dean. Um, many years ago uh, when I was down at Arsenal's training camp with uh, Arsene Wenger one day and we were talking about football and discussing players and they were looking at players and I was trying to sign a couple of players from the Spanish league to Arsenal and um, I was saying some of the players in the Spanish league wouldn't suit the Premier League because of the physicality of it and I said technically they're really good but some of them wouldn't be able to adapt to the physical side of it, even though they're technically great. So I said, you have to be very careful who you pick. And he was asking me about, 
Spain and how it was doing and, and it was actually starting to do really well. And I said, they have a great system because they coach the kids um, at eight, nine, 10 years of age and they have the top coaches cherry picking the best kids in the schools and bringing them together and having a, 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 a grade A coach, um, who, a full badge coach who was taking them and giving them all the benefit and the skills that they could, could uh, uh, learn from. And I said, they don't do that in England because the system wasn't right. And that went on for a few years. And then I, I remember going to watch, I was commentating on a game at Wembley and it was Manchester United were playing Barcelona. And um, Ma Manchester United had lost to uh, Barcelona, I think, a year or two earlier. And Fergie had big hopes that they were going to win, especially at Wembley. And Messi, Iniesta and Xavi run the show and just destroyed them. And after the game, um, Andy Roxborough was the technical director for UEFA, and he came running over to me, I was chatting to him, and he said, you will not believe the stats. He said, you know, Messi, Iniesta, and Xavi exchanged like 496 passes between them in the game. And I says, right, and he says, that's just unbelievable. And I went, I could show you the stats from last week's game in La Liga, and they'll be exactly the same. 450 to 550, that's what they have. One touch, two touch. And this is the way they have been brought up and they had this. And the gap was so good, big at the time. And Alex Ferguson actually said, um, we're at total disadvantage. He said, they've got these kids, you know, at 10, 9, 10, 11, 12. He said, they've got them 16 hours, 18 hours a week that they can work with them. He said, our kids, he said, we, we don't really get a hold of them until they're 14, 15. And he said, it's a, the, the gap and those age gap for the five or six years is so great that we're so far behind. And I agree with him. And he's, he had a point. He was right. And I told David Dean this. And David, I think he took it on board, but he didn't do anything about it for maybe five or six years. And then the Premier League has changed. And they are starting to adopt. And they're starting to um, get more coaching sessions with the, the kids and give them better. So it was, I think I told them there was 38,000 full batch coaches in Spain um, at, at that time. And there was only nine or 10,000 in the, in England. So straight away, they've got three or four times more full batch coaches who could go and coach the kids in the school. So it's a chicken and egg situation. You've got to really prepare and have the coaches who are good coaches and can go and teach the right techniques. And this was what Lorenzo Serra was asking me when I was there. He wanted to know about the coaching techniques and what we did. And um, if you get the balance right, and I think Spain has got the balance right, they've got fantastic technical players, uh, but they have the aggression. You look at the Sergio Ramoses, you know, his commitment is unbelievable. I know he's got probably the worst red card record in world football, but this guy is so determined and he's a winner. And that's why they, 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 you have to get the balance right and the success is there for everybody to see. And looking back, do you think back and go, what could I have achieved if I'd had that? Because you only started taking football seriously as uh, a 16-year-old, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm happy the way I, my career came about because um, I played football in the street and, um, and lamppost was your goals. And uh, I never played serious football until I was 16, 17. So... Um, I'm happy the way it worked for me. But other players, if they're dedicated and they want to become um, a professional footballer, 
you have to give them the actual tools and you have to give them the opportunity. And um, we didn't even have proper pitches then. Uh, the fact that it was playing in the street, there was no parks. Now they've got all the equipment. They've got the coaches. They've got the, the equipment. But some of them don't have the passion or the determination. And that's the thing that's missing for me now. Kids are so hooked on computers, uh, playing games and watching computer games and music and earphones and stuff. I, at the conversation I had with Glenn Hoddle about what he wanted to do and how he practiced at his game, you have to practice and practice makes permanent. So I would say the attitude has to be just as good as your technique. If you don't have the right attitude, you won't be successful. Do you think Gaelic football helped your attitude? Because on that team, I'm thinking, I've interviewed Pat Jennings about it before. He played midfield for Newry Shamrocks. said that was a great help, obviously, being a goalkeeper. But uh, did it help you just um, once you went over? You were a bit older, obviously, going over. But having had that kind of, uh, you know, the the physical nature of Gaelic, you had to, yeah, that mentality helped. It did for me 100% because, I mean... I'm, I watch Gaelic football now and I don't like the hand passing. Uh, I think it's become more like a netball than a, a Gaelic game. I love that when you could feel and you were kicking the ball and you were catching it and you were jumping and pulling it out of the air and everybody was trying to punch the back of your hand. and It was a lot more physical, the game, and I enjoyed it. Um, I don't see uh, it as enjoyable a game now. I'm glad I played when I played, but that taught me a lot of lessons, plus the, the stamina, playing on a huge pitch against 15 aside and the physical side of it because when the fight started at one end of the field you knew you had to turn around because you were going to be squaring up the pack guy beside you and it was a free-for-all so you looked after yourself and everybody was taught how to look after themselves and um, the, the attitude was always going to be right with me I had a, a good attitude all my coaches will tell you um, that uh, I love training and I wouldn't pull out of a challenge and if somebody needed hit I would hit them and uh, I could take getting hit, but I would come back for more. And uh, I think all of those are important as to the build-up that makes you the person you are. The remarkable thing is you actually had a pretty decent games career, not just in football, but in, in hurling as well. Yeah, I won an All-Ireland Hurling medal when I was 17. 1971, I was playing for the Anthem Vocational Schools team and we played Croke, at Croke Park, we beat Tipperary in the All-Ireland Final. And um, But I had to play, because in Ulster there was only, Anthem were the only team playing hurling. And we had to go into the Leinster section and I won a Leinster medal playing for Antrim Vocational Schools, which is a, a bit of an anomaly there. Well, and uh, won the Leinster medal, played against Wexford, Kilkenny, all the top hurling nations. And then we beat Tipperary in the final. And that was a big occasion. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And then the following week, I went back as captain of the Antrim Vocational Schools football team and got beat by Mayo by a point, which was a, a bummer because we were a good good Gaelic team as well. But I won Ulster finals, uh, minor level, under 21 level. And I played for my club team, St. John's. And um, we won lots of titles. I've won loads of Antrim titles with my club team. And um, my last game... My last big game, I think, was in the August 1975 before I signed for Tottenham. And that was against uh, Tralee. It was in Tralee against Kerry. And um, we had beaten Tyrone in the Ulster Under-21 final. Mickey Hart was playing for, for Tyrone. And my father comes from Tyrone. And he always has a bone to pick with me at because I think we beat them 
by something like 11 points to six. And I think I scored eight of the, the 11 points. And uh, he wasn't too happy about that. Mickey always tells me that when I see him. But um, we then played uh, Kerry at Tralee. And that was against uh, Paddy O'Shea, was the main man, and Pat Spillane. And th listen, they had an unbelievable team. And we got beaten in the, in the semi-final, but we had a player sent off. Brent and Tully got sent off in the second half, which didn't help. But um, that was my last big game uh, at Gaelic before I moved to Tottenham. That is some team that you were up against. And then what they ended up doing at senior level, that's first very tasty. We're Pat Potty, he's a great character. I went down to see him in Trilly a few times, down to the bar. And I uh, had some brilliant nights with him. He was such a character. I loved him the bits. And but at the time of the eighty two World Cup, you'd moved on from Tottenham. You were you were with Watford, and I mean Watford, an amazing story for so long. Graham Taylor, obviously Elton John owning them, great team, Barnes, Blissett, and so on. Yeah, well, um, Watford had been chasing me for a year, and I was trying to leave Spurs at the time because um, Keith Burtonshaw fancied me as a centre half, and I played a lot of games for Spurs as a centre half, and um, but I wanted to be a centre forward, and um, it's like. You know, I'd, I'd play for Spurs against Stoke City and uh, John Duncan had an injury and I played up front and scored twice. We beat Stoke 3-1 up at Stoke. And then the Sunday, the next day, I flew over to uh, Windsor Park and played for Northern Ireland on the Wednesday against Belgium in a World Cup qualifier and scored twice against Belgium. We went 3-0. I came home the next day, went to training on the Friday and I'm playing uh, centre-half for the reserves at Bristol City. You know, that sort of thing. I just thought, I'm not going to, I can't do this. But it was, those days, you have to remember, well, there was only one sub. And it was easy for me to be on the subs bench because I played right back for Tottenham. I played midfield. I played centre half. Played, I even played a game in goal. I was talking to Glenn Hall. He's played three games in goal for Tottenham, believe it or not. So, um, but I didn't want to be a utility player and I didn't want to play at the back. I wanted to be an attacking player. And when Graham signed me, he signed me as a centre forward. That's what he wanted. And I learned a lot from Graham Taylor in the, the two, three years I was there. And Elton was just a breath of fresh air. He was fantastic. Loved his football. And uh, he was a superstar, but he loved the players and he, he really looked after as well. And it was a fantastic family club for me to go into. And I, I do give a lot of credit to Graham Taylor and Watford for, I was so physically fit when I went into the 1982 World Cup it was untrue. I could have run all day. And we had a, it was like a laugh. That used club at Watford at some stages. We were doing 10 mile cross countries over Casabury Park as part of our training. And I'd never done a 10 mile run at Tottenham. We'd have done four or five miles, but you'd never do a 10 mile run. And uh, we trained really hard. And he got me in great, great shape before the World Cup. What was the atmosphere like at Watford? Because obviously they'd come up from the second division, finished runners-up to Liverpool straight away. There was the FA Cup final after you'd gone to uh, Mallorca where they lost to Everton. And like the, to be so strong for so long, for being such a small club, is remarkable. Yeah, well, that's Graham Taylor was the driving force. Uh, I'm not being funny. He took him from the fourth to the top flight. And he planned it. And uh, the year I joined, in the October, uh, Pat Rice joined as well from Arsenal. Les Taylor came in from Oxford. And that, that was the last pieces of the jigsaw, he said. And we were pretty low on the table at the time. We had a couple of games in hand and we won the games in hand and uh, finished mid-table that season. And then he said in the summer, we're going to get promotion this year. This is our, our, our goal. And we went, first game of the season was away to Newcastle, beat Newcastle 1-0. 
start of the championship and then we went on a run and it was tough tough league to get out of but you know we had the resilience and the determination and graham drove us on and he had a great system with young players i was watching a youth team game um the year after i joined and we were we were going really well and it was uh, we had just got we were just getting promotion that year it was 81 82 season and watford got through to the youth cup final against manchester united and the first leg finished 3-4 to Watford in Old Trafford. And the second leg, I went to watch the game at Vicarage Road. And it finished 3-3. And I watched the two lads up front for, um, for Manchester United. And that was Mark Hughes and Norman Whiteside. That was the front two. And Norman was still 16 and a bit then. He wasn't 17 yet. And I thought, wow. And he's from Belfast. I thought, this kid's great. And then Hughesy was just sensational. But uh, Watford won that, and John Barnes was playing for Watford, and Nigel Callahan and uh, Kenny Jacket, uh, Warrell Sterling, Steve Terry, Jimmy Gilligan. I mean, they all went on to play uh, first-team football. So the system that Watford devised and brought them through the youth with Tommy Wally into the reserves in the first team was a great system, and it was comparable. The reserves played exactly the same way as the first team. And it was a four. When we didn't have the ball, it was a four. 4-2 and when you did have the ball it was a 4-2-4 and he played with two wide players Nigel Callahan on the right John Barnes on the left and it was great it was exciting and uh, Graham was a fantastic manager and a, a great motivator as well and I know in terms of the media in later years when he was a commentator for BBC Radio everybody loved him uh, he was still the same man pretty much wasn't he totally um, loved his football and totally honest as the day is long uh, he was a pleasure to work with and uh, to be a part of. And I, I do feel that two, three years that I moved to Watford was a big influence in my career and helped me immensely. Uh, one, for the World Cup, and two, when, what I went on and achieved uh, as a player and going to Spain. And I've done two stints as assistant manager for Northern Ireland, two four-year stints, you know, with a lot of success. You know, one of them was great when we beat England 1-0 at Windsor Park. And uh, Sven Jorlin Eriksson was the manager and he was my mate. But I really did enjoy it, I have to say. And beating Spain as well was another one, 3-2. We beat Spain and Spain went on to win the Euros shortly after. About six, eight months later, they won the Euros. And that was their first bit of success. And then they went, won a world title. They were the world champions after that. So it wasn't a bad team. Um, but listen, it was a great journey for me. I can't complain. So these days, you're obviously doing a lot of work with Virgin for the Champions League, Nations League, Europa League, and Premier Sports for the International Champions Cup, which isn't happening this year. But uh, 20 years or thereabouts with Sky and the Spanish football, and you've seen them all come through. I have seen them all come through, and I'm watching it again. And uh, I don't know if you've been watching La Liga. I've been watching it the last couple of weeks, and I watched the Mallorca versus Barcelona game. And I have to say, I love this kid, Take Kubo. The, the little Japanese player who's on loan from Real Madrid to Mallorca. He looks a real talent at 19, uh, 18, 19, he's class. And he could be a big star. Uh, but Mallorca's got problems. They need, to, they need to score goals and stop conceding them. They're in the bottom three at the moment. So are Espanyol and Leganes and Alaves are down there. Celta Vigo's down there. So it's going to be tight as to who's going to go down. But... Uh, I fancy the squad of Real Madrid currently because they've got a stronger squad, I think, than Barcelona. And they're now just, they've went back to the top. They had a good result. And the other one is Marco Asensio, who's a fabulous left-footed player, plays for Spain and has been out with an injury. 
he's back in and he scored the other night. And um, it's looking good. Real Madrid, I think, should just about nick it uh, at the end. It'll be tight, but uh, I think Real Madrid can still win it. Yeah, you must be delighted that despite all the problems that there have been in Spain, obviously with the recent situation the last few months, that they did manage to get the, the league playing again there. I was so pleased to see it coming back and um, I'm pleased to see all the football coming back. But I don't think football's going to be the way it was. I think football's changed dramatically forever. And um, I think the systems and uh, I'm not a big advocate of the, the amount of money that they're earning. Um, I don't think it's it's just not in, in the, the, the current world situation, global situation. You know, players who are earning over a million pounds a week, you know, it just doesn't it doesn't add up in my head. And I, I, I want players to earn good money, but I think they should be paid uh, accordingly. Um, I don't think you're going to see the same crowds back at football that used to be. Um, certainly, it's going to change uh, the contracts that uh, the Sky Sports and the BTs are going to be paying uh which they paid ridiculous amounts of money in the past for the contracts. I think that's going to change as well. So um, the face of football is going to take a change in the next uh, year or two. And, uh, you know, we might be chatting in two years' time. Well, as to, do you remember when we had this chat? I think it's going to happen. I think it's a good thing, though, I have to say. I think it's a good thing. You mentioned uh, Glenn Hoddle is probably underrated. You would have known George Best quite well. Uh, Scored against Diego Maradona's Barcelona. Uh, lost them in the end, uh, and you've watched Lionel Messi. Um, how do you compare those players, those kind of players over the years, how good they've been? I've had a couple of great times interviewing Glenn Hoddle and talking to him in private, and he's a big Maradona fan. He thinks Maradona's the best player he's ever seen. Um, the argument is George Best, in the era he played, he could quite easily have been uh, as good as Maradona and better than Maradona and better than Messi had he had the same sort of level playing field. But we don't know that. It's just, I, I saw George Best do things in training that I've never seen anybody else do. And he had two great feet and he scored with both feet and he scored with his head and he was over 20 goals every season for Manchester United. But his, he, running with the ball, he was like a ballerina because his, he would swerve 45 degrees to one side and then he could crack himself and he was brilliant at what he did. He was a sensational player and a lovely guy as well. Messi is the best I've seen in the last 15, 20 years. I think he's better than Maradona. Uh, I think he contributes probably a little bit more. Although Glenn says, look, he won a league title with Napoli. And uh, he said, and they weren't even a great team. And yet he won it on his own, which I, I hold my hand up and say, yeah, I know what you're saying. But everybody, it's great. Football's all about opinions. And he has his opinion. I, I always had the opinion. I said to him, Glenn, you played 53 times for England over a nine, 10 year period and scored eight goals. I said, how are you not playing 150 games for England? You know, and it's just the circumstances. He said the people then looked at the Brian Robsons who could do penalty area to penalty area, but they should have been Brian Robson and Glenn Hoddle playing alongside each other. And Ozzy Ardiles, when he saw Glenn at Tottenham, he said, if Minotti was here, he would build the team around Glenn Hoddle. And I, I see that. And Glenn wasn't appreciated probably until he went to Monaco. And Arsene Wenger said, no, no, you're playing in the diamond. He said, you're too deep. I don't want you packing over the halfway line. You are up the, the other half. You're up scoring goals and creating chances. Play your strengths. And this is what I was taught as a manager. Play to your strengths. Charlie, when we were talking about the games in the 1982 World Cup, you were demonstrating a Jimmy McGee level of memory. 
and sometimes <laughs> foreign yeah. players. Uh, foreign, foreign listeners probably wouldn't know who Jim McGee was, but Irish listeners he was would class. know. Yeah, yeah. He was class. but usually uh, professional players, ex-players, they probably don't remember that much about their games. So I was just wondering, is that the influence of your media career? Is it something you had all uh, your life as a football fan? And also I wanted to ask when you moved into media, because I remember reading Gary Lineker saying that he was driving back home after his first appearance in television. He was like, I'm never going to see that. Did you have the same feeling? How did that go for you when you moved into media? It's, I think if you're going to do something, you have to enjoy what you're doing. It has to be something that you enjoy. And sport is something I've always enjoyed. But um, for me, it's, it's one of those where um, I, I've always had a good memory. And I have the players phoning me up. And Pat Jennings was saying to me, do you remember when we were in the World Cup in 1986? And I said, yes. And he'll say, what was the name of the hotel we stayed in? I said, called the Tapatio. And he said, and where was it? I said, it was in Guadalajara, Pat. <laughs> so I have like a bit of a photographic memory and it helps. I think it helps when you're doing what I do. I never used to write a lot of notes as Will would probably tell you when I'm doing games, I would just have the team sheet in front of me and I wouldn't have a lot of notes because most of my knowledge is in my head and I can re record when I go back and talk about the Honduras game and we were one one nil up and I put his one nil up. I do remember the player scoring and it was Betancourt was the, the player who scored the header. And um, it's just, I sort of visualise things and I can remember seeing the player and I know his name. And I, it was the same for, you know, the last minute of the game against Spain when the ball was lobbed over the top and Keeney, who had come on as a sub, and I remember Keeney, he was the top goal scorer in Spain at the time. And uh, the ball bounced and he was trying to get on the end of it. So it's just, I, I do remember their names. And uh, it's been good for me, fortunate for me, that that memory has helped me in my career. Well, nice one, Jerry, And hopefully it will continue for a, for a long time to go yet and continued success with the radio show as well. Thanks, Well, I look forward to seeing you down in Dublin. Absolute pleasure having Jerry Armstrong on board. He's had a very long broadcasting career, but be that as it may, he was still playing when Liverpool last won the league in 1990. But that can be put to bed in the next couple of days. As usual, please do like, rate, review and subscribe. And until next time, it's goodbye and look after yourselves. <laughs>